Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. Hello to anyone who's listening to this asynchronously via the Temple Beth Am podcast. Speaking of the podcast, coming soon will be the podcast version of last night's uh, Dreaming About Israel at 100 program with Rabbis Elazar Muskin and Noah Farkas and Dara Fremer. And it was really, um, if I may say so myself, illuminating and, 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 and worth your investment of time. So you can watch it on the YouTube uh, through the Shul's channel or wait for it to come out on an audio podcast. Uh, we are going to jump right in. Uh, we were, I think I just read the second of a couple of verses at which Rashi is quiet. And let's just kind of um, get get going so we can move forward to the next co- uh, verse that has Rashi. So I always forget. Okay. So chapter seven, uh, verse 21, the aftermath, or maybe the better way of saying it is the impact of the um, first play. Chapter seven, verse 21 the fish, which doesn't refer obviously to a single organism, although wait for that because when we get to the frogs, Rashi is going to say something. Oh, yes. Yeah. Alan, Alan knows that one. Yeah. The the fish, meaning the marine life, if we were to use our English way of referring to that kind of thing, that was in the river. We went through before why the Nile is referred to as the Yor, because Yor is kind of a uh, ch- irrigation channels, and that's the way the Nile actually uh, irrigated Egypt. Meta died, Vayiv Ash Hayor, the river was foul or smelled, Veloyachlumitsrayim, and Egypt could not drink, Lishto uh, to drink, Mayim Min Hayor, the water from the river, Vayahi Hadam, Bechol Eretz Mitzrayim, and the blood was throughout the land of Egypt. Okay, second, so someone's coming onto the Zoom. So that's where we uh, left things off. Um, the, again, the, the second of two verses in a row, I think, where Rashi does not say anything. Two verses or one verse? Uh, I think it's two verses. Uh, and we read that verse last week. I don't think we had a time to uh, really linger on that verse. So did, did anyone have a comment or a question on that verse before we jump into verse 22, where Rashi begins to pick up again? Going once. Okay, going twice. Let's read verse 22. Joel, do you want to read? Remember, if you're in the room, project, because I think the audio is only coming in through my computer, and we want to make sure that people uh, can hear you. Okay. The magicians of Mitzrayim did thusly, with their, we had that word before, right? You don't know lights or something, words, and um, Paro's uh, um, heart was hardened and he did not uh, heed them as God had said. Good. And if you if you want to remind yourself where Latte Hem came in, it was back in verse 11. If you just compare verse 11, this verse. This is the initial scene where they're just kind of establishing um, Motion Aaron's presence and the scene of turning the rods into the snakes. In verse 11, And Pharaoh also called, and this is where we discussed, are these uh, plural nouns uh, referring to different 
excuse me, types of courtiers and magicians, or are they just synonyms? He called his wise ones and his magic makers Bayasu Gamheim, Khartoumi Chwaim, and those sorcerers of Egypt also did the same thing. Belahatehem came. So the difference is that in verse 11, it's with a hey, lahatehem, lahatehem, and in our verse, it's without the hey, it's lahatehem. And if you look back in verse 11, um, Rashi was comparing that to lahat, the, the flaming sword that we, um, that the Garden of Eden is protected by back in Breshit. But if you looked over at Uncleus on lahatehem, he translates lahatehem in verse 11 as lachashehon. Lachash means what in Aramaic or Hebrew? A whisper. Mm-hmm. Like he says that the, the lahat was not a, a physical thing, but the whispered means by which these incantations were done. Okay, That's how Uncleus translates it there. To go to our verse, how does Uncleus translate lahatehem here without the hey? What's the lachashehon? Same thing, right? So according to Ungolus, these are the same words, right? If you were to interview Ungolus, would he say that it was a scribal error that the hay was added or omitted? We're not sure. But what what whatever he thinks the origin of the two words are, he translates them the exact same way, that this has to do with the whispered means by which the uh, Egyptian magicians did their thing, okay? Um, let's pause there. Anything else... Um, on the uh, on the verse that raises a question. To me, there's a, at least a somewhat obvious question on the verse, but that doesn't mean that it's obvious to anyone else. Barry and then Joel? A little bit louder, Barry. <laughs> yeah, I could tell by how you were clearing your voice you were going to speak loud enough. I'm, 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 a, I'm, a, I'm a sorcerer, and I knew the future. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> what, what did they do likewise? Ah, good. And what did they do likewise, and why do they do it? Because likewise would mean we, we they also turned their water sources into blood. It's a very strange phrase. Like we get the balance that so we're going to have these moments where God's representatives on earth are going to do things that are hard to believe. And then um, Pharaoh's representatives are going to do the same thing. But you would like to think that the plot would make more sense if what the what Pharaoh's people did would be to undo what Moses did, but it doesn't say that. Just a vayas Either that or something as crazy as turning everything to blood. Right. But what crazy thing did they do? Good. Okay. So that that is a um, like a classic ver- question on this verse. Rashi is totally uninterested by that question. Doesn't mean that it's not a good question. I've I've always wondered um, what the Torah is trying to convey to us right there. Yeah. Go ahead, Barry. Another issue is uh, in translation. This of. Uh, uh, the key word is uh, what is this? Uh, um, uh, it's, a, it's a magical incantation. Is what I have here. How, how do you make a magical incantation that is powerful and awesome that's turning the whole whole country to blood? Right. But another way of asking, what is it exactly that the Khartoumi Mitzrayim did, yeah. and and what was its impact, Joel? Mm-hmm. I just have a grammatical question. Go ahead. Is that passive or active? Right. It's a really good question. There, there is a category of verbs in Hebrew called stative verbs. And I used to be able to explain it better than I can now because it's been a long time since I studied it. But they're neither active nor passive, nor passive, but they are describing a state of being. 
and we have words for them in in English, but it but it's not a one to one match. So it's neither that the subject, it's the, the subject of the verb beyachazak is leif paro, but it's not that the heart of Pharaoh is is doing a strengthening, is doing a hardening. It, it's it's describing. Correct. It's it, it's right. It's another state of verb in Hebrew, which is different English, is sleep. When you say Adam Yashem, it's a verb, but it's a type of verb that's just describing the way the person is in that moment. It's not actually an active verb. It's not Yoshain, right? Yoshain would make, would have would have been like a, an, a, an active uh, pa'al verb saying that the person is doing the activity of sleeping. It means the same thing, but in Hebrew, we're not saying the person is doing the activity of sleeping, but this verb describes the state that the person is in right now. And what state is that? It's a sleeping state. So here by a chazak lev paro, what is the current state of lev paro? It's chazak, right? Not that it is it has happened to it, not that it is doing the chazaking, it's just describing its way of being. It's almost like a verb acting as an adjective. Yeah, it's it's almost coterminous with Lev Paro Chazak. Larry, I mean Alan, excuse me. So when you say it says here it was hard, it didn't say it was hardened. That's the translation you have? Yeah, the translation I have is it was hard. Yeah, it was hard. Remained hard is interesting too. We don't have Larry and his translations, but let's look at some. That are available on Safari. Because it was already hard in the previous rods. Right. So I'm going to share the screen. That pristine says became hardened. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, okay. So uh, my translations here. Okay. So Everett Fox is the one on the screen. And uh, and Pharaoh's heart remained strong-willed, right? So the, the the remained is sort of interesting. It, the word "remain" isn't there, but he's saying that the verb suggests an ongoing state of being. Okay, um, JPS. Para, Pharaoh's heart stiffened. That works too because it's not it's not that it's saying it stiffened something else. It's describing the stiffened state of the heart. And it's trying to make sense of the fact that the verb is written in a, in a direct verbal way and not as an adjectival way. Let's look at a few more. Uh, the Corin here, uh, Paro's heart was hardened. So Corin reads it as a passive, even though it's not actually a passive verb. Mitsuda remained hardened. Um, was strengthened, because it's reading it as chazak, not, uh, not kasheh. Let's see what the old JPS did. Was hardened. Uh, and this is the one that we, we discovered. Toreshara. Where'd it go? Uh, oh, he, he, he turns it into a whole paragraph. The magicians of Egypt obtained water from the Hebrew settlements in Goshen and did the same as Aaron with their secret arts. So this is clearly a translation that is a commentary and a translation. So he's answering the same question Barry asked. What does it mean that they did? What did they do? They went to the places where the Israelites had fresh water and converted their water to blood. 
but they succeeded with the stagnant waters only and not with the flowing ones. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them. So clearly this is a translation that's incorporating probably layers of Midrash or just pure imagination his part. Can I do a scenario? Yes. Uh, I think like uh, probably um, the magicians took the water from Nile, which was red. Maybe they had something like uh, bleach they put in. It became white, but immediately turned red <laughs> because he had to deal with God. And um, Pharaoh was bullied, so he couldn't answer. But he still wanted to say his magicians can do. He went to his room, he closed the door. <laughs> well, we're going to see him close the door in just a moment, actually. Uh, Rick? Yeah, hi. Um, I just wanted to point out the the nine words here from Vayechezak to the end, to Debir Adonai. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the same nine words that we had in verse 13. All of verse 13, by the way. The same words, different trope for some of it. And then again, when we have Vayechezak in... Um, that was 15. Um, in uh, 35, it's going to be the same deal. Velo shilach Israel. Um, so it's it's a formula. Um, that phrase from Vayechazak to Ka'asher Dibar Adonai. Right. It's a formula and it suggests that we're in a narrative place where we're going to have repeating tropes, uh, pun intended, right? Re- re- repeating musical tropes sometimes or changing musical tropes, but re- repeating narrative and storyline tropes. Yeah. Barry? I think what, what's significant to me is that these are not causative each time causing his heart to harden. Rather, it's, it's an ongoing state of being. His heart all the way through is hardened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and some of that has to do with what the story wants to say about Pharaoh. Some of that has to do with just the way the Hebrew verb operates in this situation. Um, but th- th- we don't have to see it as a hardening, softening, hardening, softening, but rather a reminder that this is the way this Pharaoh holds himself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, okay, Rashi does speak about something in this verse, but not what we have been talking about. So any other comments or questions before we get to the Rashi? Mm-hmm. Okay, Joe, Joe, uh, sort, sort of loud. Um, okay, so the first thing he does is, is say, Hey, reader, just as you were wondering what what meant a few verses ago, you might be wondering what latehem means here, and you might be wondering for the same thing. And I, Rashi, was saying, Yes, it's the same thing, and I'm agreeing with Uncleus, and it's a lachash, it's a whisper. And now he tells you um, why he thinks the word latehem means lachash. So shomrim, what does he mean? You say softly and secretly. Right, so lat, um, I will whisper you a song quietly. So Rashi is making... I think <laughs> a cute but etymologically incorrect association between the word latehem and balat here, saying it is something which is quiet. I could be wrong. Maybe that he that he's right, but I I think he's sort of being more playful than accurate, and it's done 
in a secretive way. And that's why it's called a lot. And so their lots, meaning their, their secret whispers, their whispered their sweet nothings. Okay. Uh, and then he continues. The, the sage who said, Rabbi said, is something with the with ghosts? Yeah, ghosts, uh, sh- a shade is a, is, a, is a ghost or a demon, right? Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's um, like um, magic things, right? Conditions. What what question is Rashi answering, beginning with the words "Verabotenu Amru"? Our sages said. He's giving us the answer, but the question is implied. Well, I mean, just what "Lahatehem" means compared to what "Lahatehem." Right. So, so now that Rashi told you what he thinks the word means, he's saying. And you, astute reader, remember, particularly if you haven't been doing it as slow as Rabbi Clickfeld's Rashi class, you got to, you actually read that verse just nine verses ago. Why are there two? Ah, they mean slightly different things. Latehem is when you um, get your magical work done through the demons in the room and in the universe. And lahatehem is when you get it done through actual magic. I want to share with you one of the, to- the rabbinic places uh, the Talmudic sources where this comes from. So let me just pull it up. Okay, this comes from Masechet Sanhedrin. Amar, so chapter, uh, page 67b. Amar Rabbi Aibo bar Nagiri. Rabbi Chia bar Abba Belate, uh, Rabbi Chia uh, bar Abba. Belatehem elu ma'ase shedim. So this is the, the, the question that Rashi is dealing with is directly from the Talmud. And you have a chain of rabbis. Rabbi Aibu said the name of, sorry, Rabbi Aibu, the son of Nagri, said the name of Chiyabar Abba, that when we have these um, two verses, the Latehem, you can see the, the translation here, they are word, they are Words are describing acts of employing demons, which are invisible, and their actions are therefore hidden. Bala'at. So, reading the la'at here in the Talmud differently than when Rashi read it. Rashi read it having to do with something quiet, but when it comes to lahatehem, these are direct acts of sorcery which they did themselves. Right. So, what's interesting about this is that you have Rashi and the rabbis of the Talmud leaning into the methods that the Egyptian sorcerers used to do what ended up being interesting and, and impressive feats. And they had they had several methods. They could, this is weird for the rabbis to say of the Egyptian sorcerers, they could employ the demons in the room, right? To suggest that the rabbis believe that there were demons that could be employed. Um, or they could simply do it by, you know, David Blaine, sleight of hand, their own, their own, uh, their own, their own sorcery. As if to say there are two methods and they're different than how God accomplished the accomplishes things but they're not non-existent. It's sort of a nod towards the notion that even other peoples and other cultures could harness the spiritual power of the world to get things done that would seem miraculous. Barry? I was going to touch on the idea. They're opening up a can of worms, so to speak. 
admitting that such thing exists, that there are powers outside of God. Yeah, yeah, and and powers that can that can do things that mirror what God is doing on some level, right? Just suggesting the existence of this is a big can of worms, right? Well, if we, at the beginning of Torah, it says just to have God and not believe in other powers, it means they admit there was something else, but you shouldn't follow them. That's right. all. Right. When the, when the Torah says, you know, do not do not bow down to Elohim, to their gods, it, there are two ways of reading that phrase. One is don't bow down to the things that they consider gods, which are not gods, or there are other spiritual forces in the world that are not as powerful as me, but they have earned the title Elohim. Pay no attention to them. Pay only attention to me. Right. Mm -hmm. And we're not 100 percent sure which the, which that meant in uh, in situ. Right. When the, when the verses first come by. Um, in in, in Rashid and creation, God created evil. Some say this. And so this evil is independent of God, that God created it. Draw the connection. So the demon of evil, these these demons is 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 the power mm. of evil that God created initially reshaped mm. and let it go independently. And can be harnessed by Egyptian uh, magicians. And that's where the free choice comes. So you choose between either. Um, okay, anything else on Latehem, Lahatehem? Okay, no, but can you see if people can talk a bit louder? It's hard to hear, especially Barry. Uh, yeah, and also, are you hearing any of the, the child's noises from outside? Are those coming? No, no. okay, because it's nice having the we windows do. open. We hear them, but I don't know if that's muting it. Um, I'll see if next time we can get a microphone. I'm trying to figure out, I'm sure it's technologically possible, but I'm not sure. Okay, we have one more Rashi in this verse, Joel. <laughs> That is to say, through the magic that you are doing here. That's what those words mean. And I, and I figure out what, what, what it is that Rashi is saying that Pharaoh is saying. So well, he's, just, he's saying it's not a stated verb, that it's an active verb, that these, whatever they did, hardened his heart even further. In other words, well, what God's doing is not so great because my magicians can duplicate it. Therefore, I am going to be even stronger in my position. Right. So, so very close, right? So I'm, I'm not sure Rashi is or is not weighing in a web medicine active verb, but he's describing that the reason why Pharaoh's heart is either still or again chazak is because Pharaoh's inner monologue, which we're now getting a window into, is basically saying either to himself about motion Aaron or to motion Aaron, you think that's impressive? All you are doing, folks, is michashfut, which is the gerund form of lechashef, to do magic. You, you're doing magic tricks. And keep going, vechi, uh, sorry, v'teven. Teven atem machnisim l'ofrayim. Now, you may not know what this word means, but there is a very common English version of this yes. uh, rhetorical question. And what is it? Falls to Newcastle. Correct, right? What is what? What does it mean when it, people speak English you, yeah. use it? Because what what's what is produced um, very uh, 
Abundantly. abundantly in Newcastle. I'm sorry, I don't know. Coal. Coals. So when you're, when you're bringing coals to Newcastle, it's like, I don't know, bringing interruptions to the library minion. I don't know what that would be, would that be right? It's, bring, it's bringing, um, sorry, it's bringing something to a place that is already abundant with it, right? So the one thing that Newcastle does not need is coal, right? So this now, um, Rashi through the Talmud is inserting into Pharaoh's head a certain like um, uh, an lack of, of, of a sense of being impressed by Moses and Aaron. You did something. My folks did something. You all do the same thing. You want to impress me by bringing to Egypt that which Egypt already does rather well, because apparently there was this place called Ophraim that was well known to have good straw. And I want to show you the source of that also. Uh, where is it? Okay. So if you look up Ophraim in the Talmud, uh, sorry, in the Jastro, oh, it's very small. Yeah, I don't know if I can make that. Uh, Hector, are you listening? Hector, if you're listening, there's a, hmm, I have no idea how to get rid of that box. You hit okay. okay. I don't have. The cursor I don't. I don't have the cursor to that screen. I can. I can see it. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, it's the it's the words right underneath that box now. So Ophraim, which I know it's it's a little small here. Let's see if I can can I zoom in. Uh, I'm not going to spend the time trying. There it is. I know it's still small. Um, Ophraim. Um, so Jastro says that it's compared to the town called Chafarayim in the 19th book, uh, chapter of Joshua, Afarayim or Hifarayim, and there are several places. This first citation is Menachot 8.1, right, uh, which is the uh, mission of Menachot 8.1. So let's look at Menachot 8.1. All public and private offerings can be brought either from the land of Israel or beyond the land. Very technical terms, which I don't want to go into. It could become come from, um, new produce and old produce. That's not just the way we use the words new and old in English, but it has to do with, with what year the produce is attached to. Except for the offerings of the Omer, right? The, the days leading up to Shavuot and the shoe bread, the two loaves of bread that were in the temple every day. Those two have to be brought from what's considered Chadash property. And it has to be considered, has to be brought from the land. But no matter which category, and they have to be brought from the best stuff, bring the best stuff Oh, is it blocked again up there? Sorry. Um, bring the bring the best stuff to I'm right over there to the temple for your sacrifice. Ve'ezuhumukhar. How do you know that you're getting the best property? The the breast produce. Well, if you want to get the best best, get from Michmas Umizonicha, which apparently they were um, uh, two towns that were known to have good produce. Actually, let me move this. Come on. It's not working. Um, uh, alpha la solet. So alpha is what you think it means. It's the best. It's number one when it comes to fine grain. Shnialahem. What was second when it came to the best fine grain in the world? Chofarim babika. 
the place called Chofarim, which is also um, called Afarayim, our word, in the valley. So according to Mishnah Menachot, the second best place in all of ancient, you know, extended Israel to get fine grain was Ofarayim. And it was considered so good that look at this uh, line from the Talmud on this Mishnah. Um, on the phrase, V'kulan enan ba'od muvchar, that all of these uh, offerings, ugh, that thing really is annoying, isn't it? And the, the, the people on Zoom, you're not seeing this, but the people in the room are seeing something blocking the very thing I'm putting on the screen. What, what is that up there? What does it say? The priest session sponsored by the sponsored session. Okay. Okay. Not only does he know Rashi, he knows how to handle the screen. Yeah. Okay. So on this on this quote from the Mishnah that all of these sacrifices have to be brought from the best stuff, etc. Amri le Yochana Umamre. Lamosha. Yochana and Mamre said to Moshe, from context, who do you want to guess Yochanan and Mamre are? The, the Egyptian, the Egyptian uh, magicians. Two of the Egyptian sorcerers, right? The Talmud is imagining. Yochana and Mamre said to Moshe, Tevin ata machnis Ofarayim. You are bringing straw to Ofarayim, the second best place in all of ancient Judea to, uh, to have straw. We don't need that here. So the Talmud imagines that it's Moshe's counterparts who are saying it to him. Rashi quotes this source or con contracts the source in something a little more compact and says, the reason why Pharaoh was self-assured in having his heart remain hard is because he's saying to himself or he's saying to Moshe in his fantasy, you're, you're not bringing anything novel here. You're actually bringing here the very thing that we actually do here well. It's like you're bringing straw to Ophariam. It's like you're bringing coals to Newcastle. It's like second-rate art. Yeah. But, but how can he really be saying that, given that we talked about that the blood was not just in the Nile itself, but in all the tributaries and everything else? That's something that goes beyond what their, the magicians in Egypt could otherwise do or even try to do, there would be no reason to do so. Well, maybe. I mean, we still haven't resolved completely what it is that the Torah meant when it says, Vayasuchein chartumei Mitzrayim. Maybe the Egypt's magicians, you know, to, what is it, to um, to bite your nose, to, uh, what is it, to, it's the frick. Cut off your nose, Cut off your nose to spite your nose, right? It's like, like, to show how powerful they are, they also did things which continued to ruin their their uh, their economy and their well-being to show that they were, were as powerful, which would allow Pharaoh to say that so far, the things that you've done, we can do too. Why would they want to do it? I don't know. How do they do it? That gets into the question of why the Tory wants to make space for the notion of there being supernatural things that, that can be done not with God. But it gives what we, what we say in Hebrew a pitchon peh, an opening for Pharaoh to say, "Not so impressive." Or even if it's impressive, we we do that. We're the winners of this of this magic act. We we invented this stuff. Not a big deal, right? Well, but, Rosemary, but we have always um, behind our mind that God makes His heart uh, harden, and I have experienced this in my life when God hardens somebody's heart. 
even if you show anything, they don't see because God has pardoned and there is a higher uh, aim to that. Yes. I mean, if God wants me like to clean the table, you can do everything. But if I have to clean the table, I will clean because he hardens the heart of people to throw more dirt things on the table. So finally, I will do. It's not that um, Pharaoh is relying too much. It's his ego relying on his uh, uh, magicians. He knows, but his heart has been hardened and he can't do anything. He doesn't yeah. have the power. Yeah. Alan? Yeah. In the Silverman, in the actual text, in verse 22, they translated it as, and Pharaoh's heart was hard. And yet, when they, when they, when Silverman talks about Rashi's comments, he says, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Yeah. What's the difference between saying his heart was hard and his heart was hardened? What's the grammatical difference or the content difference? Content difference. Can I give the answer? Go ahead, Rosemary. <laughs> the, um, the hard heart can be softened. But if a heart is hardened by God, you can't do a damn thing. You can also yeah. argue it the other other way, that that a, a hard heart is simply the way this person's heart is. If if it's a hardened heart, it means that if it was hardened from having been soft, maybe it can be softened from having been hard, right? But I think what's going on there is really a, a Picayune grammatical um, uh, situation, trying to figure out how to how to... Uh, translate because it's a verb in that category of verbs that states that describes a state of being as opposed to a, a direct act. Okay, I just find it surprising that the one source would have it in two different ways. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Renee, you just muted yourself, Renee. One can be more of a physiological, like became hard physiologically, and the hardened one is more of an emotional state. Um, what do you mean by physiologically hard? Like, like physically, it became hard. Like the the organ itself became hard. Right. This doctor is working on something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Joel, finish the phrase. We actually we actually spoke it all out, but we didn't say all the we read all the words. So after in the Rashi where it says Tevin Atem Achnisim Okay, you brought straw to Ephraim ear Shikulak Tevin a city that is. All of it is, is, is uh, straw. Right. And again, in the Talmud, it's not that the city was all straw, but that it was known for highest quality straw. Yeah. Um, here too, you're bringing a magic tree to, uh, to Egypt. Shikula Shafim. Full of magic. We've got this here, right? So even though what you did temporarily, uh, ruined the water of Egypt. You did something that is familiar to us. We're, we're, we're not going to submit. I'm not. I'm not going to let my slaves go for this. You're going to have to do much more to get me to leave, let my slaves go. And this is all Rashi's way of saying why it was that lev that the lev of Paro, the heart of Pharaoh, was either uh, still or once again hard. Okay. Um, people will, you know, give themselves lots of internal reasons why not to make a change, right? So this also might be a, a little window into the psychology of Pharaoh, that he's convinced himself that what he's seen done by uh, Moshe and Aaron is not 
significantly more impressive than what he's able to do with his own people. Okay, comments, questions on that? Remember how you were saying that when famous rabbis write books about their stuff, they usually use puns in their name? Yeah. So when Lev writes a book, you can call it Vayachazek <laughs> yes, I, I, I will. I will tell him that when I see him in a month. <laughs> uh, okay, um, Joanna, do you want to read verse twenty-three? Sure. Thank you. Um, Paro turned and uh, it, an interesting choice for like, obviously it means went to his house, but came to his house, mm-hmm. the Vayavo, um, and not Vayelech. Velo sat libo. I, want, I mean, to be quite literal, like his heart was not put down by this. He didn't pay attention to this. Um, I would almost translate it, in fact, similar to like, when we talk in Hebrew, like Lassim Lev, to pay attention. He didn't yeah. pay attention to this. Correct. That that verb shot, shin taf or shin vav taf in, um, in, in uh, biblical Hebrew is to, to turn to, to heed, to set. Uh, it can also sometimes be referred to where, where one placed one's hand or where one, uh, um, you know, one lays one's hand is having to do with placement or focus or attention. So um, he he turned right. He kind of like did a did a one eighty. Uh, he comes into his house, um, and he does not he does not turn his heart or let his heart pay attention to or be uh, diverted. Let his heart be diverted. Gamlazot. How are you going to translate gamlazot? Also to this. Also to this. What's the what's interesting? What else is interesting in terms of the words used in this verse, aside from the turning and the shot? The also. So like, what was the first thing that he didn't pay attention to? Very good. So gam can mean in the, in the Torah an intensifier, but sometimes it just means another one, right? Uh, and, and also refer um, implies an antecedent. So if the gam here is implying an antecedent, excuse me, what do we think the precedent is? The, the the magical moment with the snake and the rod, that's one possibility. Anything else? Initial request, is that the same encounter? No. That was the first time they asked, is it the rod? Right, so because the, the reason why it raises a question is that we are in plague number what of 10? One. Oh. <laughs> right. So, right. So we're we're in, we're in plague number one of one, and when we read this, we know we're in plague number one of one, and therefore the gam is an interesting interesting word because our first reaction might be, well, what had there been previous? And one of the more common reactions to that is, ah, there hasn't been a plague, but there has been a show of magical force, right? So that's a possibility. Let's see what- And Rob- also just the verbiage that there was also the announcement that God was going to be, that that Pharaoh was going to be hardened and that things were going to happen. Right. And if the Torah- Not says, specifics. The Torah says that Pharaoh also didn't pay attention to this, 
there has to be a way of saying, in addition to the time when Pharaoh didn't pay attention to that. And so what is the that that this is in addition to? So look at the Rashi, um, Joanna, on Gamlazot. Just one second. I also think, by the way, as I'm getting to um, the Rashi, that um, I wonder if like what he didn't pay attention to at first was he seems in like Exodus one, very taken by surprise at the growth of B'nai Yisrael. Like all of a sudden there's this numerous and populous nation in front of him that he wasn't kind of paying attention to all along. And so to speak, in a very different way, it was kind of a mistake on his part not to pay attention. And similarly here, too, it will be a mistake on his part not to pay attention from now. Hmm. Very, very interesting callback. Thank you for that. Before you finish, the, read the Rashi. I see Rick's hand up. So let's see if Rick wants to insert something before the Rashi. Um, also a callback. Um, a little bit. Can I do that? Um, I'm, I'm realizing that if we go all the way back to chapter four, the beginning, when God says, these are the tricks I want you to show Pharaoh, the, the first one was the, um, uh, the serpent from the rod, okay? And the second one was his hand getting leprous, which he never does in front of Pharaoh. I want to point that out. And the third one, uh, this is um, verse nine. And the third trick, you can take the water and turn it into blood. And at that point, Moses doesn't even react to that. He goes, I can't do that. I can't speak. Right. He, he, I mean, it's like this major plague and Moses doesn't even focus on that. But now here we are actually announcing the blood and uh, uh, um, it, it's it's the major thing. And, and it. it Moses didn't even react to it back then. I just, I just thought it was interesting that, um, again, the the hand, the leprous hand, doesn't get doesn't get used at all. That's yeah. all. Uh, great, thank you for that callback, Joanna. Read, please, the Rashi and Gamlazot. Gamlazot lemofet hamate shenapach letanin velolazet sheldam. Um, I would kind of translate this as you know, kind of inserting a few words. The first thing he didn't pay attention to was the, the, the wondrous miracle when the rod turned into a snake. And, and then now the, the, he also, the Velo, he also didn't pay attention to this one of the dumb. Very good. Exactly as Barry had said. And this, and this connects to what, what Rick had said before, because we actually did have this phrase, if, as Rick showed us, when we got to this, the, the moments right after the rod and the snake trick, the Torah said, that Pharaoh's heart was either still or again hardened and didn't pay attention to him, exactly as God had said. And so this allows, as God, exactly as God had said would happen, and this allows us to have the sense of Gamlazot. And also, again, this time, it wasn't plague then, it was warning, but to neither of these two moments where God has, through motion Aaron, shown his intended superiority, neither times did Pharaoh say, uh, I'm yielding even a little bit. Meaning, it's not even, I, I think sometimes when we think about the 10 plagues in our minds without paying attention to every single verse, 
we think of it as an undulation, right? Um, a, a melting of the heart, a hardening of the heart, a melting of the heart, a hardening heart, or the opposite direction. And so far, we actually haven't seen any melting, right? It's just hard and then hard again. It's not like he he had conceded a bit and then it stiffened. It's just so far, there's been nothing to move Pharaoh away from his position that he's in charge and God is not. Barry. So uh, I think you said it just now, but that you, that you asked a, a question that really stunned me. Um, what was a good play? So um, the, 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 the rod, that's a, that's a trick. And and so Pharaoh, uh, he doesn't know this is playing yet. The blood. He just thinks this is another trick. Right. Right. Um, oh, meaning that he, I see what you're saying. That from Pharaoh's perspective, this is not... We had a warning and now we have a plague, but this is just two things in a row in the same similar category. And because he doesn't know the story that's coming. That's why the right. straw and all yeah. that. He doesn't know there are locusts on the horizon. <laughs> he hasn't seen the movie, right? And, and, either. He hasn't seen either movie. Yeah. And he should start with Cecil B. DeMille. Yeah. And perhaps Pharaoh doesn't know the full extent yet that the blood is everywhere in yeah. all the rivers and all the tributaries and everything else. So we think, oh, this is just like the snake yeah, yeah. from the rod, no big deal. This is no big deal. Interesting. Because he doesn't know about it. Right. So hold that thought with the next verse, because the next verse is going to throw a curve into, into our understanding of the basic plot and what is happening in real time in Egypt. Joel, is your hand up? No. Oh, okay. Uh, look at us. We're going to read a third verse today. I can't believe it. They'll never, those who missed it today will never believe how much they missed. Uh, verse 24. Um, let's see. Whom have we not heard from today? Uh, Barbara, do you want to read verse 24? Thanks. I can try. I mean, I can read it, but let's see about translation. Help you. Don't worry. Um, Vayachparo kol mitrayim suvivot hayaur mayim lishtot ki lo yachlu lishtot mimi mei haya or good i'll help you along here the root of vayach karu uh is the three letter root chet pay resh chafar chafar means to to dig, to dig okay and yeah, yeah. Plural, okay. so and so then so, all, all the egyptians dug right and they dug saviv saviv boat okay yeah what, what does saviv mean Around, yeah. Around, right? Shabbat Sovev is Shabbat in the round, right? So they dug Svivot Hayaor around the, the river, the okay. Nile. Right? Well, uh, the river, because it doesn't say Nile. That's for darn sure, but the translation says Nile. Right, because the Torah's word for the Nile is the Yaor, right? Uh, even though you, we use the word Yaor to mean something more general. Okay. And we dig. To dig water, um, to drink, to drink uh, because they're, they weren't they weren't able to drink uh, from the. Um, I know the may may Mayim. It's Mayim, the plural of Mayim. 
Oh, okay. From the water of the Nile, of the, of the river. Very good. Okay. So we know what these words mean, but if, you, if you're a, even a half step ahead of me, you're already recognizing the question on the verse, right? The words mean that all the Egyptians dug around the Nile water for, for potable drinking water. Why? Because they couldn't drink water from, they couldn't drink from the waters of the Nile. But presumably all the water they drank that they dig for is going to be bloody, right? Ah, right. So if we believe what we read in uh, verses 19 and 20, no matter where they dig, there's blood precisely because of what the Nile is, right? The Nile is a yaor, which spills over its banks and all of the waters and the reservoirs and the agams and the uh, the Nahars and the Yaors, and even in the Eitzim, the Avanim, even the places where they already had water in their wooden and stone cups had already been bloody. So is, is are we being told that, A, there's several possibilities, that when we said before that there was water everywhere in Egypt, we didn't mean it comprehensively. Can you close that? I can't. I, I can't. I love hearing the sound of the kids, but I, I, I can't. I can't think. Can you close that one, Stuart? Um, either are we being told that it wasn't as comprehensive as we thought, or are we being told that they are digging for water, but they're digging fruitlessly for water? Like they're digging out of desperation, but they're not able to? Or are we being told that um, somehow, even though verses 19 and 20 uh, showed a comprehensiveness, if you dug deep enough, you could find fresh water, which is always the case, right? It's not clear, but there's an, there's an immediate plot problem given our understanding of how widespread the plague was up above. Barry? All flowing water was blood, but sieving it, sieving it, or filtering it through sand caused it to be clean, or relatively clean. Well, we don't know that. Right. We don't know that. Right, and, and verse 19 seemed to be pretty comprehensive. Let's remind ourselves, right? Verse 19. Hold your hand over all the waters of Egypt, on their Nahars, their rivers, on Yorehem and the tributaries, on Agmehem, the reservoirs, the Chomik Vemehem, and every gathering of water, and there'll be blood. And there will be blood for all the land of Egypt, even in the wooden and the stone vessels, right? So if you had read verse 19, and you were asked to predict, like, could an Egyptian just go into his backyard, dig a little bit and find fresh water? Our answer would be no, right? But now in verse 24, we're being told that either they did or they tried to, right? That's what, that, that is the critical question. Are we being informed that it happened or they attempted to make it happen? Mm -hmm. Joanna? I wonder if there's another possible read here, reading this purposefully in conjunction with the verse that comes before and inserting some missing text, which is Paro was not paying attention to what was going on, but God was. And what does that mean? Paro thus far wasn't impressed with, you know, God's tricks. So Paro went home a little bit too quickly because God then decided he would make water available, not in the Nile itself, but around it. That would be something that the the Khartoumim, if they did the same trick, wouldn't be able to do to, you know, to keep the water right around the Nile and, you know, the tributaries and underground wells or whatever clean and only the Nile affected. And, you know, if there's something going on here, like, look, all the more power of Hashem at what he's able to do here. It's a fascinating read and, it, and it's sensitive to the 
potential problem in the verse. When, when you started speaking, I thought you were going to say something slightly different. So I'm going to fill in what I filled in my head when you started speaking, which is that Pharaoh has made up his mind that it is not an emergency. And he turns around and goes home into his four-poster bed, right? But in the next verse, we're being told by the narrator that it is an emergency because all of Pharaoh's subjects are not saying, oh, they did it, we did it, it's all the same. They are feverishly and possibly in vain digging as much as they possibly can because there's no potable water in Egypt. This is not a you did a trick, I did a trick. This is uh, this is near ca catastrophe. And um, I think I'm impacted by that read, both in terms of what I thought you were going to say, Joanna, and the commentary we're going to read in a second. Rashi is quiet on this verse, which I find interesting. Rashi doesn't see any problem or any anything curious about this. He pipes up the next verse, but not this verse. But there's one commentary I want to read with you. Oh, um, just, let me just make a ask a question or make a con in 19, which you just read. Um, it says all bodies of water, or whereas water in the soil may not be considered a body of water. So if they were looking for something that's not a body of water, although then it can be said if you pulled up water from it. And then it became a body of water. So it could go either way. There's no certain resolution of those two verses. Absolutely. One, one could answer it that way, but but one could respond to that answer. Dam bechol Eretz Mitzrayim, blood in all of Egypt, should be comprehensive even underneath the ground. Yeah, Alan, and, it, and it even went to the vessels. Right. The wood, and if it goes to wooden vessels, the wood would think, well, of course, it's going to go to water that's right. adjacent to the Nile. Well, I would say that the Nile and any water that originated from the Nile would right. become blood. Right. Yeah. But underwater, but underground water does yeah. not originate from the Nile. Let, let, let me hear Joanna, and then I, I do want to read this one commentary before we're out of time. So Joanna, and then I'm going to put a commentary on the screen. Um, without getting too far ahead, just the first word of verse 25, Vayimale, I'm, I'm struck that it's Vayimale Shivat Yamim and not like just like, oh, Achare Shivat Yamim. And it takes me to the verse in Esther where it talks about how right? they had these prescribed days of getting ready. They were very purposeful and intent days, right? Like it wasn't just sort of random. And I wonder if it's calling attention, like pay attention to everything ha that happened in these seven days and the subtle changes that varied, you know, from the start of the plague to the end of the plague because every bit of this was with God's intent. Yeah. Uh, we say Baruch Shekivans, right? Blessed be you who anticipated what another sage is going to say. Rashi is going to say something similar on that verse, which we'll get to next week. But let's end this week by bringing up the Ha'amek Davar. This is the beautiful commentary in the Torah by um, the rabbi called the Nitziv, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, uh, who was in Lithuania late 19th, early 20th century. And his commentary is called Ha'amek Devar, go deep into the thing. Right? So we have a verse, that the Egyptians dug um, uh, around the river uh, to, to find drinking water. And his comment is based on a very precise reading of, of, of what, what syntax seems to be lacking in the verse. Okay, so I'm on the right side of the screen here. The basic idea of the commentators is, quote, they dug, 
Milashon chafirat adama, digging in the ground, because that's actually how we understand the word chofer, is to dig in the ground. So the classic way of thinking is that they took out their shovels and they dug. Aval, he says, but imke, if that's the case, chaser tevat lahotzi, the word to bring out is missing from the phrase. And what he's saying is that if you're going to say that they dug in the ground, then the, the Torah should have said they dug in the ground in order to extract water. Mayim lishtot, to extract water to drink. You don't dig the water, but rather the, the ground. And the verse is written as if to say, what did they dig? They dig the water. So if, if, if it meant they was to dig to get water, then it should have been by Achbaru Kol Mitzrayim Svoti or Lahotzi Mayim Lishvot to remove water from the ground. A verb is missing. Lachain Nira. Therefore, it seems to me Shehum Milashon by Achbaru Lano Eta Aretz. This is from earlier on in Breishit. There's another use of the word Chafar, which doesn't mean take out your shovel and dig in the ground, but rather Demashmo Chipush to search, to to try to locate something that is hard to locate. Uperush. And therefore, the interpretation would be here, or all the Egyptians who are dwelling near the river, they searched in vain, feverishly, desperately, they were trying to find water drink from the waters of the, uh, of the Nile. And then he finishes the comment, but they weren't able to, right? So his way of resolving it is saying, it's similar to what we talked about before. According to verse 23, national emergency is over. Pharaoh goes back to his uh, home. In verse 24, you've got the entire population not realizing that no matter how uh, deep they dig, they're not going to be successful, but they're trying. They're looking any way they possibly can because you can live without food. You can't live without water. Right. So the way we end this class is um, plague one kind of done, Pharaoh uh, unimpressed with plague one. And depending on how you read verse 24, either the people having found an ingenious way to get around the blood and the water, depending on what you think Vayakru means, or the people, as is always the case, suffering much more than the one in charge. Right. You know, you're, you can look at any headline today right now. Right. The. Uh, the the Ukrainian people and the Russian people on both sides are suffering much more from the war than either Putin or, or Zelensky are, right? So the people are are uh, are um, parched because they have nothing to drink and somehow Pharaoh feels this will all be over soon. Joanna, last comment, or was that a rehand or a same hand? No, a new hand. It's interesting that there's a theory about um, Hebrew. Not, I think it's not accepted by all scholars that Hebrew originally started as a two root system. So when you have two root letters that are the same and the third, they actually all go back to an original two root system. So it's interesting that the words lachpor and lachapes differ by only the, the one letter. Right. And we've talked about that a lot in the, in the past and certain there's certain families of roots that it's more obvious, like payresh and paykuf verbs. And um, the difference between chafar and chafesh is not just that it's one letter, but there are there are back-to-back letters in the alphabet, right? So it's 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 the beginning chet pay, and then are you doing the penultimate letter in the alphabet or the anti-penultimate letter in the alphabet? And they're probably cousin meanings. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. 
If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.